got to be faster. Um, my understanding also is that the only people who feel allowed to preach uh, when he is not here is all people. <laughs> So there we go. There we go. Um, he w uh, ben would consider me his rabbi. Uh, now, you might want to ask him about that story a little bit, uh, but around our church, I am known as the rabbi, uh, and, and the short story is that I hail from a Jewish background, um, became a Christian when I was in in high school. I'll tell you a little bit more about that story later. Uh, but I have one wife. I have three kids who are all grown. I have 7.8 grandkids. And I know most of you are kind of looking at me and thinking, you know, how can a 40-year-old guy have like eight grandkids? Um, I'm actually a little bit older than that. Um, but Looking forward to uh, just sharing the word with you this morning. I want to pray for us, and then we're going to look into the scriptures, all right? Father, thank you for your word. Ask that just as we look at this one verse in John chapter 1, verse 14, that you would speak. <coughs> or that is our prayer, that you would speak. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Um, if I were to give a title to this message, uh, besides the incarnation of Jesus, it, it would be this one word, breakthrough. Breakthrough. Um, in the year 1802, Napoleon Bonaparte was approached with the idea of building a tunnel across the English Channel to connect France and Britain. The technology had not yet been advanced enough to seriously consider the endeavor at that time. But in the fullness of time, isn't that a great little phrase? I love that little phrase right there. In the fullness of time, uh, technology advanced, and in 1986, Britain and France came together, signed a treaty authorizing the construction of what would become known as the Channel, the Channel Tunnel, uh, that would connect the two countries. And over the next Four years, there were 13,000 workers uh, that dug 95 miles of tunnels at an average depth of about 150 feet below sea level at a cost of north of $15 billion. 29 years ago, as of last Sunday, in fact, right about this time last Sunday, um, as workers were digging from both sides of the channel, breakthrough occurred. And when breakthrough occurred, French and British flags were exchanged through the hole that had been created, and they toasted one another with champagne. It was what you might would call a French toast. Um, <laughs> now, it would, take, it would take another four years for, the, uh, for passenger service to begin in the channel, but a way had been made, a way had been made to connect these two countries that had experienced a lot of enmity over their history. 
You know, as we continue into the Advent season, um, I want us to look at this one verse in John chapter 1 this morning that explains how in the fullness of time, God broke through time and space to create a way that two enemies could be eternally reconciled, a way uh, that, that they could come back together. And then I want us to look at some of the practical implications of what that verse means. So the verse is John chapter 1, verse 14, and it says this, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now there is a lot to unpack just in that one verse, and, uh, and, and so... <clears throat> I want us to look at really four parts of that verse. And along the way, we're going to ask four questions. Um, If you were to get to know me, you would know that I am essentially a question asker. So uh, I tend to ask a lot of questions, and I do that even as I preach. So you'll hear me ask some questions. Um, The Word became flesh. Here's the question. What does that mean? The Word became flesh. John chapter 1, verse 1 starts off this way. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. See, the Christmas message is that there is hope for a ruined humanity, hope of pardon, hope of peace with God, hope of glory, because at the Father's will, Jesus Christ became poor and was Born in a stable, I feel like I'm in a stable right now, by the way. (laughs) Born in a stable so that 30 years later he might hang on a cross. It is the most wonderful message that the world has ever heard or ever will hear. And the more you think about it, this is what J.I. Packer said. The more you think about what God did, the more staggering it gets. Nothing in fiction is so fantastic as this Truth of the Incarnation. Incarnation. It's a theological word. You've probably heard of it. It means God appeared in the flesh. In the flesh. I mean, just think about it. Just think about God became a man. That is a crazy, mind-blowing idea in and of itself, that God would become a man. And honestly, I cannot explain it. It is one of the great mysteries of our faith that we cling to even when we don't fully understand it. The best I can do this morning is to maybe help you understand the why behind the what. And sometimes that's more important, to understand the why behind the what. So here's the why. Why did God become a man? This will sound familiar. The God that we worship is a holy God. God is holy. But as I am looking out at you and as I am looking in myself, I recognize this about us. We are sinful. 
God is holy. We are sinful. God could have absolutely nothing to do with sin, and we could do absolutely nothing to solve the problem that kept us separated from God. So you know what happened? God took the initiative. God took the initiative to solve this problem. God's character demanded restitution. Scripture says that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin, and only blood that is that is perfect, that is untainted by sin. A holy sacrifice was needed that on the one hand would turn aside the wrath of God towards sinners, and on the other hand would demonstrate God's magnificent love towards us. So God told his people what was going to happen. But you know what? They didn't get it. They didn't understand. He told them what was going to happen, but they didn't get it. And so then he painted a picture for them. And he used the Old Testament sacrificial system uh, to paint a picture, but they still just did not really understand what had to happen. So you know what he did next? He sent a bunch of prophetic messengers to tell them about it. But still, they did not get it. So finally, finally, he sent his son. He sent his son to be the once and for all sacrifice that, that sin demanded. And then, everything began little by little to make sense when God sent his Son, it's kind of like this. So I love to travel. Um, has anybody in here ever been to the country of Switzerland? All right. If you have never been there, if you get a chance, you need to go to Switzerland. It is gorgeous. It is, it is the most magnificently beautiful place that I have ever seen. And, and you may or may not believe that that's true just because I'm telling you that it's true. Now, if I were to throw up a picture of the Alps up here on the screen and just show you a picture of just how glorious the Alps are, you may be impressed, but you might not believe that it was true. But if there was somebody else who was here this morning who had been to the Alps, and I brought them up on stage, and, and they were to back up what I said and tell you that he's right, Alps are beautiful, they're the, the most beautiful place I've ever seen, then you might begin to agree with us, but still you might be a little bit hesitant. But if I were to take you personally to the Alps and show you their majesty, there would be no doubt in your mind that they, were the, that they are the most beautiful place in the world. That is, that is kind of what God did. He sent his son so that in person he could tell us what had to happen. John chapter 14, verse 9, Jesus tells Philip this, Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. The word became flesh so that God could reveal himself to men. In Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, Scripture says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son to redeem those who were under the law. The reason why Jesus appeared was to redeem us, to reconcile us. 1 John 3, 8. 
It's already read this morning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the work of the devil. So why, why did the Word have to become flesh? God had to break through our stubborn, willfully disobedient, uncomprehending minds so that we could begin to understand our need for a reconciler. God had to break through the legalistic chains that, were, that kept us from thinking that somehow we could save ourselves. And God had to break through the thick walls of our pride and our self-sufficiency and our egotism and our racism and our unforgiveness and our envy and our idolatry that the evil one had erected to separate us from God. God had to break through into time and space. The word became flesh. Praise God that the word became flesh. Amen. Verse goes on to say the word became flesh and then he dwelt among us. He tabernacled among us is the way that a translation might say. Or he pitched his tent among us. Or uh, in the message by Eugene Peterson, he puts it like this. He said, God moved into our neighborhood. I kind of like that. God moved into our neighborhood. But here's the question. So what? So what? So when John talks about the fact that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, he's alluding back to the Older Testament days when the Israelites were wandering around in the wilderness and the Lord camped in the midst of them. Now, you might remember that a mobile tabernacle had been set up. It was a wooden structure with a tent over the top of it, and the glory of the Lord would fill that tabernacle. And whenever God's Shekinah glory lifted up and moved, the Israelites would pick up their tents and they would follow suit and move as well. Exodus chapter 40 starting at verse 34, says this, And the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out to the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, and in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all of their journeys. That was the way that God initially manifests himself to his people. Now, fast forward a number of years, the people have settled into the promised land in the days of Solomon, which was somewhere around the late 900s B.C., a temple was built in Jerusalem. And this was where the Lord then took up residence and his glory filled that temple. Fast forward then another 400 years and the Babylonian captivity took place and the temple was destroyed. Ezekiel records in chapter 10 that the glory of the Lord departed the temple. 
And we move into, shortly after that, what's known as the silent years. There's a period of about 400 years where we do not hear from God. And then, and then, the glory of the Lord reappeared in the person of Jesus. God again dwelt among men. God moved back into our neighborhood. God incarnate. But so what? Well, it's a reminder. It's a reminder that God has not abandoned his people. It's a reminder that he is still yet with us. God, Emmanuel. It's a reminder that even... Back in the days with the Israelites, he still directs our steps. It's a reminder that that we, as the people of God, are called to incarnate, to flesh out the gospel. It's a reminder that we are to be on mission daily. It's a reminder that the word of God is powerful enough to break through any sin or any situation that you might be dealing with. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Um, Apollo 13 is one of my favorite movies. Uh, But even before that, uh, no, shortly after that, Apollo 15, astronaut James Irwin, you may have heard of him. He was one one of just a few men to walk on the moon. And he served as the Apollo lunar module pilot for Apollo 15 in 1971. He was the eighth person to walk on the moon. As he stood on the lunar surface and he looked up at the earth, he prayed for the first time in his life. He thought about the wars among the nations. He thought about poverty. He thought about hunger. He thought about the rampant evil that existed down here. And he thought to himself this thought. What is more important than man walking on the moon is that God should walk upon the earth. See, Irwin had grown up in a Christian home, but he had stopped actively practicing his faith when he was 10 years old. And after his experience on the moon, he became a devout, born-again Christian after the realization that God had descended from the heavens and dwelt among us. God dwelt among us. Praise God that he dwelt among us. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father. Now here's the question. How does that apply to us? How does that apply to us? Well, a few examples from Scripture of people who actually saw the Lord's glory. You'll be familiar with these probably. Moses in Exodus chapter 33. Moses actually said to the Lord, Lord, would you show me your glory? Verse 19 of chapter 3. Lord said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And the Lord said, behold, there's a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you 
in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. And when Moses came down from Mount Sinai, chapter 34 tells us that with his two tablets of the testimony in his hand, he came down. But Moses did not know. Moses didn't know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Literally, his whole countenance was changed. His face looked different because he had been in the presence of God. Now, here's a question. When, when we have been in the presence of God, does it change our countenance? Does it, does it put a smile on our face? Does it, does it make us look different? You know, the church, the people in the church have been accused of just being a bunch of gloomy gusses. You know, I mean, you know, you say you're a Christian, but it sure, nobody would know from the look on your face. Uh, I mean, that's the way a lot of people look. Being in the presence of God ought to change our countenance. It ought to make a difference in the way that we come across to other people. Amen. Isaiah chapter 6 um, says this, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the, the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke, and I said... Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. When Isaiah had, been, had seen the glory of the Lord, when he had been directly in the presence of God, he was undone. He was on his face. And then God asked a question. He said, I need a volunteer. And almost before he could finish getting the sentence out of his mouth, Isaiah was like, ooh, 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 pick me, pick me, pick me. When we have been in the presence of God and we have seen his glory manifest, we are willing to do whatever God says. Amen. It was a hard road that Isaiah had ahead of him, that God called him to, to be a prophet of the Lord. But his hand was up, and there was no going back because he had been in the presence of God. Now, question. Is it possible for people like you and me? I mean, we're talking about Moses here. We're talking about Isaiah But is it possible for people like you and me to encounter the glory of God like these guys did? The answer is yes. The answer is yes. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18, Paul is talking to the Corinthians and he says, We all, all of us, beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed. He took for granted that we could experience the presence of God the same way that folks like Moses and Isaiah did. All right, so how does that happen? How do we behold the glory of the Lord? How do we experience God's presence in a way that changes us? So every pastor 
hopes that you are going to remember everything that they say on a Sunday. And I know you guys do. And, and if, if, I, if I were to come back on Wednesday night and I were to ask you to just, to, to just recount my message, you'd be able to go boom, 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 boom. Right? Right? All right. So I am not so naive as to think that you guys are going to remember everything I say or everything that Pastor Ben says on a Sunday. But here's what I want you to do. I want you to remember three words. If you remember nothing else from what I say this morning, I want you to remember these three words. You might even write them down. All right? Three words. First word is this. Look. Look. Look for God's glory. Moses said, show me your glory. He wanted to see it. He wanted to experience the presence of the of God in a way that he had never experienced it before. And so, look. (coughs) Second word is this. Listen. Listen. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 8. Isaiah says, And I heard the voice of the Lord. And thirdly, and this may be the most important one, linger. Look, listen, listen. And linger. It may actually take lingering in the presence of God for you to hear and see the glory of God. You know, my guess is that most of you spend time reading your Bible. But if you're like a lot of believers at my church, I know that it kind of becomes a, one of those things that you sort of check off your to do list. Okay. I've read my, you know, chapter for the day, pat myself on the back, good to go with God. We need to learn how to linger in the presence of God. And as as we're reading Scripture, as we're allowing God's presence to speak to us, sometimes you have to stop and just be quiet. Sometimes you have to stop and just ponder the things that the Word of God is saying, and not just go through the motions of checking off the box that I've read Scripture for the day. You know, we live such hurried lives that rarely do we take the time to linger in the presence of God. One of my favorite pastor authors is a guy by the name of John Ortberg. Uh, He once asked a mentor of his what he should do. Now, this is a guy who was a pastor, he was an author, he had written a lot of books, and yet he had a mentor, and he went to him and he said, what do I need to do if I want to get to know God better? And his mentor said this, you need to ruthlessly eliminate all hurry from your life. Ruthlessly eliminate all hurry from your life. Life. We live such hurried lives that it is not often that we take the time to linger in the presence of God. And until we begin to do that, we will not experience the presence of God in a way that will change us. So perhaps if we were to take the time to look and to listen and to linger, then maybe just maybe the Lord would break through the hardness of our hearts and maybe we just might be changed.
The Word became flesh. And we've seen His glory. He dwelt among us. We've seen His glory. The glory as of the only Son from the Father. Last phrase is this. Full of grace and truth. Jesus was full of grace and truth. He lived the perfect balance of a life. When people needed grace, you know what they got? They got grace. When people needed to hear the truth, you know what they got? They got truth. Grace. That is a magnificent word in Scripture. Grace always carries with it the idea of something that is completely undeserved. So a little bit about my story. I didn't grow up in a Christian home. I was born into a Jewish family, was not brought up Jewish. As a high school student, I was not a bad kid as our culture judges that kind of thing, but I was far far away from God. And through a series of circumstances, God orchestrated the opportunity for me to be introduced to the gospel. And and God broke through my selfishness and he helped me to understand grace and he rescued me from a life of darkness and despair. And it was completely undeserved. Completely undeserved. And, and, and I know a lot of you guys have stories like that, where God has done the same thing for you. Stories that need to be shared. New life that you've experienced, undeserved. Hope that you have that is undeserved. Joy in your life that is undeserved. An eternal family, favor with God that is undeserved. Grace. It is undeserved. Jesus was full of grace, but he was also full of truth. Jesus embodied truth. One of the famous quotes from the book of John, chapter 14, Jesus says this, I am the way and I am the truth. And I am the life. Jesus embodied truth. Truth is what sets us free. Jesus said, if you abide in my word, you will know the truth. And the truth will set you free. You know, truth emancipates us. It frees us from our fears. So I just recently went through a little episode where for about seven weeks, I had this pain in my gut and uh, had a bunch of tests They all came back negative. I had no idea what was going on. And you know how your mind kind of plays with you when you've got pain that that doesn't go away? You start thinking the worst, you know, because I I have friends who started out with pain in the gut and it did not turn out well. And so there was all this uncertainty. There was this fear just because I did not know what was going on. And then I figured out the truth. Of what had happened. So I'm 61 years old. I, uh, I, I, I spend time discipling some young college guys. They invited me to go out and play ultimate frisbee. 
And uh, so I was running and jumping and diving for Frisbees, and I shouldn't have been doing that. Turns out, turns out that I had a bunch of micro tears in the muscles of my, the core muscles in my abdomen, and doggone it, if it didn't take about eight weeks for those things to just get better. But in the meantime, I was like, what is going on? Because I didn't know the correlation between that game of Ultimate Frisbee and these tears. So truth sets us free. Now, here's the thing about truth. Truth can be disbelieved. You know, and there's a couple of reasons why people tend to disbelieve the truth. Number one, because it just seems too good to be true. It just seems too good to be true. And number two, because people are so fastened on to their half-truths that they just won't let them go. And in many instances, I hope you understand this, a half-truth is the worst enemy of a whole truth. Satan is the master of the half-truth. Here's a a couple of half-truths that our culture has bought into. See, See if you recognize some of these. God just wants you to be happy. That's a half-truth. Now, it is true to a point. God does indeed want you to be happy. But our culture has led us to believe that happiness is found by having stuff and by following our heart and by doing whatever we please. But there's a whole other half to the truth. God wants you to be happy, but genuine, lasting Happiness is found only in an abiding walk with Jesus who nourishes our soul with joy and a deep-rooted satisfaction. Yes, God wants you to be happy, but that happiness is to be found in Jesus, not in this world. Half-truth, number two. If you just repeat this sinner's prayer, you'll be saved. That's a half-truth. You guys understand that, right? It is a half-truth because it's true to a point. But see, we have created in our Christian culture this easy believism that Satan has encouraged that says, all you have to do is just repeat this prayer and you're good to go with God. There's a whole other half to it. Just repeat this sinner's prayer and you'll be saved if, if it reflects a genuine trust in what Jesus did on the cross to rescue you from certain death and damnation. Half-truth number three. God accepts you just the way you are. He accepts you just the way you are. Half-truth. It's true to a point. It is true to a point. But our culture has bought into this half-truth that you can choose any lifestyle or live any way that you want and God will accept you. But there's a whole other half to that truth that's often left out. Acceptance, salvation, brings about transformation. And God accepts you just the way you are, but he wants to make you into the likeness of Christ. He doesn't want to leave you the way that you are. You know who was changed when he encountered Jesus Christ? John, the guy who is writing this verse and who wrote the Gospel of John. One day he was in a boat trying to catch enough fish to make a living, and then he met Jesus. 
Never in his wildest dreams did he ever think that he would be remembered over 2,000 plus years later as one of the men who helped to turn the world upside down. Never in his wildest dreams did he ever think that he would be a beloved pastor and disciple maker and a famous best-selling author. God changed this man's life. And, and he wrote down this verse, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And you know why he wrote it down? He tells us at the end of the book why he wrote the whole gospel of John. John chapter 20, he says this. He said, I'm writing this so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Last question I'll leave you with. Do you have life? Do you have life in his name? It is a question worth pondering. 2,000 plus years ago, God broke through time and space But in the fullness of time, perhaps today, in the fullness of time, God wants to break through whatever it is that's keeping you from finally understanding the staggering ramifications of this great truth. So let me just repeat it one more time. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this magnificent truth that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And I ask that that you would help us during this season as we celebrate your appearing that more and more you would help us to understand just how staggering this truth is so that it changes us. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. So we're seeing this last hymn. Some of your deacons will be down front should you need to pray or talk with someone. Let's stand and sing the birthday of a king.
Thank you, Jake. Thank you. Glad I was here for this this morning. Um, you know, in your bulletin, there's a bunch of prayer uh, people on our prayer list. There's a few I wanted to mention besides that before we close. Uh, Ellis Lee's in Duke Regional. He's being treated for an infection, so he's in the hospital. We want to remember Ellis. Uh, we want to continue to pray for Tim Holt. He's home from the hospital. We want to pray for him. And we want to praise the Lord for Betty Jean Clayton, um, that she was in the hospital last weekend, but is now doing much better. Uh, and Mandy Garrett's got a hurt knee. We want to continue to lift up Mandy. Um, so let's close in a prayer. But we do lift up our, our church members, Lord, our, those in the family of Christ who are, are suffering sick. Father, we thank you for, for the way you've worked and healed people in our body. Lord, we ask you to continue. Lord, provide them good medical care. And Father, we're thankful this, this morning that as we talk about breakthrough and the incarnation, the gospel, Lord, was uh, not for our town in Bethlehem so much as it was for our hearts, for our homes, for the dark places in our <coughs> lives, Lord, where we need the light, where we need a breakthrough. And Father, we ask for that to happen, even this Christmas here in our church. Lord, for each one of our hearts, we pray for you to work. For your glory, in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. You're dismissed.